Well, good morning, Calvary family. Such a blessing to worship with you, and I'm um, so glad that each and every one of you are here. I know, uh, especially if you're new or have maybe found it a little bit difficult to connect here at Calvary, that uh, in this setting with so many people, it can be hard to get to know people. So I want to really encourage you to get involved in a life group and in a small group. Um, we, our desire as elders is that everyone would have not only the main corporate worship gathering, but also a fellowship group, and then a small group where you can really make relationships, get connected. So uh, if you haven't gotten involved in one of those, I would encourage you to visit the, the Big Blue Door. Those folks would be really happy to kind of help you to see the options and, and help you get connected. And uh, if you've had trouble connecting, uh, give the office a call, give me a call, and uh, be happy to sit down and, and talk with you. Um, sometimes people assume that, um, you know, too busy for uh, personal meetings, that's just not the case. Uh, in the six years I've been here, it's never been more than a, you know, kind of a, a two, two, three week uh, period when Anna's able to schedule an appointment. So uh, if you just want to sit down and pray, there's something you want to talk about, something on your mind, uh, just give the office a call and, and uh, make an appointment. I, I love uh, getting time individually with people. We'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. <clears throat> We're going to be in a section which goes from chapter 50, verse 1, all the way through chapter 52, verse 13. And uh, we're going to be kind of working our way through this section this week and next. And so uh, we'll kind of see how far we get uh, in it this, this morning, and then we'll finish uh, next week, Lord willing. One of the features of the book of Isaiah and actually several of the prophetic books in the Old Testament is that they will use illustrations from family life and comparisons to family life to teach spiritual truths. They, the Lord graciously takes things that we really understand well experientially, things that maybe we've observed, and he'll draw connections from our what we've seen and observed to some important spiritual truths. And this chapter is, is no different. There is a family illustration uh, that is at the beginning of chapter 50, verse 1. And this is very common uh, in the book of Isaiah. If you remember back in chapter 49, the Lord used the illustration of a mother's love for her nursing child as a comparison between his even more loyal love for his people. And in a similar way, today's text is going to once again use illustrations and comparisons from family relationships to teach us key truths. And the illustration used here is one that I'm sure we've all observed, uh, whether or not personally or just observing it in others, is the illustration of a family tragedy, of a divorce which breaks up a family. At the beginning of chapter 50, Isaiah is going to compare Israel's rebellion against God to an unfaithful wife who destroys her own marriage. Isaiah is going to tell the people that the coming exile, the Babylonian captivity, is like the consequences of ruining a good marriage to a faithful, kind, and loving husband through repeated and unrepentant adultery. Their exile from the promised land is the result of their separation from God and they have no one to blame for that separation but themselves. So look at Isaiah 50. We'll read verses 1 through 3 to get started. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? 
Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why was there no one when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth their covering. Verse 1 begins with the Lord telling the people that the coming Babylonian exile is a consequence of their iniquities and their transgressions. And in verse 2, the Lord reminds them that he had called out to them, that he had warned them, he had pled with them, he had urged them not to keep hurtling down such a self-destructive road, but no one listened. In other words, not only did they commit iniquities, not only did they commit transgressions, but they refused to repent. They were persistent in those iniquities. And so, the text is saying, it was because of their flagrant, repeated, and unrepentant sin that the exile was coming. And the Lord drives home that point by using an illustration from family life. He compares Israel to a wife who cheats on her husband over and over and over again, and despite his pleadings and his warnings, she refuses to stop her adulterous affairs, and so eventually the brokenhearted husband has no choice but to let her face the consequences of her own choices. She is literally dragged away by these adulterous affairs and then abused by these men with whom she had cheated, as the illustration goes. In verse 1, God says that because of their unrepentant sin, they will be sent away or dragged away. And this is a clear reference to the Babylonian exile. But I want you to notice something. In verse 1, while God says that Israel is being sent away, he indicates that he has not given her a certificate of divorce. He says, where is the certificate of divorce? He says, you're not going away because I divorced you. He says, you're not going away because I sold you to the Assyrians or the Babylonians. That's not what's happening here. He's saying, you're going away because of your own iniquities and your own transgressions. In fact, my arm was strong enough to rescue you, but, you, but not only did you not call out to me, when I called out to you, you refused to listen. Where is the certificate of divorce, the Lord says? Now, this phrase, certificate of divorce, kind of uh, takes us a little bit to a need to know the Old Testament context. In Old Testament times, when a divorce occurred, a written document would be made which explained the cause of the divorce. And it was important to ascertain the cause of the divorce because the cause of the divorce determined whether or not one party or the other or both had the freedom to remarry. In those days, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce, and I would like to suggest that there never is a time where there's no fault in divorce. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. 
and he hates it for good reason. It's devastating to the most innocent, which is children, and it also has terribly painful and harmful consequences for both spouses. And so Malachi 2.16 simply says, God hates divorce. And all divorce is caused by sin, either on the husband's part, the wife's part, or on both people's part. Now, you might say, wait a minute, all divorce is caused by sin? What if people just aren't compatible? Well, let me ask you this. If two people were sinless, do you think they'd be compatible? If they always treated each other with perfect kindness, perfect love, if they were totally selfless and never selfish, do you think that two perfect people who never sinned could get along? Well, I hope you believe that because sinless people are going to live in, together in heaven forever. Right? When our sin is finally done away with, there will be no more conflict because sinless perfection creates perfect love, perfect kindness, perfect treatment of one another. So all sin or all divorce is caused by sin in one way or the other. And so in Old Testament times, if a divorce occurred, a certificate would be produced which documented the cause of the tragedy. Who was at fault? What happened? And therefore, what each person's status would be going forward. But in chapter 50, verse 1 of Isaiah, God indicates that a divorce certificate had not yet been filled out. In other words, he's saying there's still time to repent and be reconciled and restored. While, yes, their sin is leading to a natural separation because they're running off after these affairs, God says, I haven't given you a writ of divorce yet. Like a broken-hearted husband who genuinely loves his wife, he's still pleading with Israel to repent, to return to him, to be reconciled and to be restored. And this illustration of a marriage is used not just here, it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's what we, we call one of these grand illustrations, an illustration which the prophets return to time and time again and use in different ways. And so as we kind of trace the way this illustration is used, and by the way, there's lots of illustrations. The Old Testament and another kind of grand illustration is used of, of God being like a vineyard owner and Israel like his precious vineyard, right? We saw that several times in the book of Isaiah. It's used in other places. So these are illustrations, and we can't press the details of the illustrations too far, but these illustrations are given to help us understand some key points. And I think as we look at the way this marriage illustration is used throughout the Old Testament, we can kind of identify six stages in Israel's relationship with God using this illustration. And uh, I was kind of prompted onto this idea by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and then I've kind of taken his general framework and kind of, uh, kind of inserted my own thoughts into it. So let me kind of walk you through six stages in this illustration of marriage as it pertains to Israel's relationship with God. Stage number one was the wedding. And the wedding took place at Sinai when a covenant relationship was made. And the covenant at Sinai is likened to a marriage contract with obligations on both sides and with consequences if the marriage contract was broken. That was the wedding. Stage two is the affairs. 
When the people strayed from God and worshiped pagan gods, God compares that to spiritual adultery. And the first instance of adultery took place on the honeymoon. Remember, at Sinai, when this covenant was made, Moses comes down and the people are already worshiping the golden calf. This is like a wife who commits adultery on her honeymoon. This is described in very poignant, stark terms in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 30 through 34. In fact, the whole chapter, but I'm going to read just a segment. Ezekiel 16, 30 through 34. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high places in every square... He's saying, look, you went after all of these pagan gods and set up shrines to them at every corner of the holy city and on every high place. And he says, in doing this, he says at the end of verse 31, you disdained money and so you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. They were literally importing gods, false gods from the other nations and paying to have these gods imported. He says, verse 34, thus you are no different from those women in your harlotries or thus you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you, thus you are different. This was spiritual adultery of the worst kind, literally importing, paying, taking money out of the Lord's treasury and using it to purchase idols and have them imported and set up at every place in the holy city. These are likened to affairs, spiritual affairs. And that leads into stage three, which is what Isaiah 50 verse one is talking about, which is the separation. Despite hundreds of years of the Lord pleading with Israel to repent and to cease this spiritual adultery, they not only continued to do so, they not only continued to worship false gods and idols, but they, can, they just brazenly did it and it got worse and worse. And so eventually he had no choice but to let them be pulled away by the nations whose gods they were worshiping. Isaiah 50 verse 1, speaking of the coming exile, says that they would be sent away because of their iniquities and their transgressions, plural. And yet God keeps pleading with Israel to repent. That's what we're seeing throughout the book of Isaiah. He keeps pleading with them. He keeps being willing to take her back. In fact, there's an entire Old Testament book, the book of Hosea, which illustrates this. Hosea marries a woman and she cheats on him and and then he takes her back, and then she cheats on him again, and he takes her back, and she cheats on him again. This is likened to Israel cheating on the Lord through worshiping idols, and the New Testament tells us that the idols of the nations behind them are demons. It's literally demon worship. And so that brings us to stage four, which is the writ of divorce. Now, when Isaiah was written, he's saying, look, no divorce certificate has been issued, right? I'm not divorcing you. You're the one leaving me. You've ran after these foreign gods, and now the foreign nations are going to drag you away. 
But about a century later, a century after the separation which was announced by Isaiah in chapter 50, verse 1, the prophet Jeremiah declares in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10 of his book that ultimately a certificate of divorce would be issued because Israel was unwilling to repent. And so the Lord had no choice but to document the cause of the destruction of the covenant. And that would bring us then in the time frame to the most tragic part of the whole Old Testament, which is when the prophet Isaiah is shown a vision of the Shekinah glory of God departing from over the mercy seat in the temple, going out of the temple and pausing as the Lord again pleads with his people to repent. But they respond with only mockery and derision. And inside the temple, they've put idols literally into the Holy of Holies. And the Lord says, I can't dwell with this iniquity. And so he comes and he pauses at the threshold of the temple, pleads with them. They don't repent. He then goes to the eastern gate of Jerusalem and pauses and they still won't repent. And so the Shekinah glory goes to the Mount of Olives. And again, the Lord pleads with them to repent. They still do not. And so then Ezekiel is shown a vision of the Shekinah glory departing to heaven. Never to be seen on earth again until the Mount of Transfiguration where the Lord Jesus revealed his Shekinah glory to his disciples as a prefigurement of the glory that he will bring when he returns in his second coming, when he returns to the Mount of Olives, enters into Jerusalem by that same eastern gate, comes into the temple and restores the Shekinah glory of God to its rightful place. Ezekiel has shown the finality of the divorce. And then we come to stage five, the consequences of the divorce. Ever since the Shekinah glory departed, Israel has suffered horrific suffering and abuse at the hands of the nations whose gods she had worshipped. She ran after foreign gods and those foreign nations abused her. This is like a woman who cheats on a kind, faithful, and loving husband, and she cheats with multiple men, and eventually she moves in with these men. She's dragged away by these men, and these are cruel men. Unlike her kind husband, these are cruel men. Like an adulteress who winds up being terribly abused by her lovers, Israel has suffered at the hands of the nations ever since she strayed from the loving embrace and the protection of Yahweh. Back in Ezekiel 16, verse 35, right after that section that I just read where he says, you know, you, you've played the harlot with all these false gods. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 16, 35. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because the blood of your sons which you gave to idols therefore behold I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated so I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy 
I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you. And I will be pacified and angry no more. These are the consequences of the divorce. They had set up the idols. And then it says they had sacrificed their children to these pagan gods. They were literally burning their children alive on the arms of these pagan gods. Do you remember Molech, right? This, this horrible demonic false god whose statue has arms outstretched and they would light a fire inside the hollow of those arms and then place children on the arms and literally bake them or, you know, burn them alive as a sacrifice to these false gods. God says, this bloodshed and this spiritual adultery is going to bring consequences. You ran after the pagan gods of the nations. Now the nations will drag you away. Those are the consequences of divorce. Stage six, though. If it ended there, it would be the world's most tragic story. But it doesn't end there. The sixth and final stage is one which is yet future. And that is the reconciliation and remarriage of the Lord and Israel. Now, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if one spouse breaks the marriage covenant through adultery, the other spouse is free to remarry someone else. That is taught Old Testament. That is taught New Testament. If one spouse breaks the marriage covenant through adultery, the other spouse is free to remarry someone else. So using this illustration, by law, God had every right when Israel committed adultery, starting with the honeymoon and throughout and refused to repent, God had every right to choose another nation as his bride. But notice that while the Old Testament does say that Israel's spiritual adultery resulted in a divorce, never once does it say that God the Father married anyone else. He did not ever take any other nation to be his bride. While Israel's repeated, flagrant, unrepentant spiritual harlotry caused a divorce, God never stopped loving them. Nor did he ever replace her with someone else. In fact, for all of these centuries, he has faithfully waited for Israel to repent so that there can be reconciliation. And throughout the prophecies of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many passages which predict that in the end times, that long-awaited reconciliation is going to occur. I want to just have you listen as I kind of very rapidly run through some of these passages. There are many. I've selected just a few of the key ones. first one is in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, 
declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And then Ezekiel chapter 16, same chapter which I read from a couple times, which described their harlotry, described the consequences which were coming in that very same chapter at the end in Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 60, hope is given. Listen to what it says. Nevertheless, right, despite all of this, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. There's gonna be a remarriage. I remember the covenant that I made in the days of your youth, and there will be an everlasting covenant which I will establish with you in the future. Verse 61, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. He's referring to the northern and southern kingdoms. Thus, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares, right? You're gonna stop mocking and deriding me and you're gonna finally repent. Then the book of Isaiah itself contains these prophecies. For example, chapter 54, verses one through eight talks about this great restoration. It says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you have borne no children. Break forth into joy, shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. He talks about how he's going to bless her with children and descendants. Verse four, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. It's powerful language. Isaiah 62 talks about the same thing. Isaiah 62, verses four and five. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. This is a powerful illustration of forgiveness. 
because he says, I'm going to remarry you and it will be as if I remember your sins no more. You won't be disgraced. You won't be shamed. You'll be embraced back in my arms and it will be like the wedding of a virgin. Glorious with no shame, no regrets, all the past wiped away, a complete and new beginning. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. In Hosea chapter 2, this same illustration is used. Now listen to the tenderness of the Lord's heart here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, right? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to win her heart again. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. These are Hebrew words. Ishi means husband and Baali means master. You're going to call me husband again. For I will remove the names of the Baals, these are the false gods from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And, and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. This is the great restoration in the end times, wayward Israel will finally repent. And God the Father, whose love for Israel is an eternal love, and who never remarried to anyone else, never chose another nation, he will forgive her, he will reconcile her, she will repent, and they, he will be remarried to her with an everlasting covenant of joy and happiness. The remarriage is coming. God the Father never remarried anyone else. Now, when I said that, some of you are thinking, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible describe the church as the bride? You're, you're right, it does. But finish the phrase. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, the Son. So sometimes people take an illustration and they kind of swap around the people in the illustration and confusion results. The church is the bride of Christ the Son. You see, when Scripture describes God's relationship to Israel and to the church, Israel is described as the bride of the Father and the church is described as the bride of the Son, the Messiah. So if we were kind of to put an illustration in terms we can understand. Israel is like the queen. The church is like the princess. The queen commits adultery against the king. And the church is the bride of the son. 
So those who believe the church has replaced Israel have made the fundamental error of failing to see the distinction that Scripture makes when it uses marriage terminology. Israel is the bride of the father in the illustration. And while there was a painful divorce, many places in both Old Testament and New Testament prophesy a reconciliation that will occur when Israel repents in the end times. The father is still faithfully waiting for his estranged but beloved bride to repent and to return. He has not rejected her forever, nor has he ever replaced her. We say, but wait a minute. Isn't the focus on the church now? Well, yeah, the focus is on the church. The father is preparing the wedding feast for his son. Israel is estranged from him. There has been a a separation. There has been a divorce. Now the father is preparing the glorious marriage supper of the lamb where the bride of the son is brought to him in all her glory. The marriage supper of the lamb is coming soon. And that is the Lord's focus right now. But that doesn't mean there's not a future for Israel. In fact, Romans 11 says that it is the the betrothal and the marriage supper of the Lamb which causes Israel to be jealous of the joy that she sees and causes her to finally long for reconciliation with the Father. Romans 11, 11 says this, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. As Israel observes the church, the bride of Christ, and and the joy of this, this wedding between the son and his bride, the church, she remembers the joy of her marriage to the father, and she repents and returns to him. Ethnic Israel will be like a divorced woman attending her son's wedding. The joy that she sees the bride and groom experiencing will cause her to long to be reconciled to her husband. Imagine, right, a divorced woman. She's at the wedding of her son and there's there's all this joy and there's all this blessing and she remembers her own wedding and she remembers what she left and she sees the father rejoicing with the son and longs to be reconciled to him. One day Israel will be reconciled. Her tragic story will end with a miracle of grace. And that means that for all eternity, reconciled Israel and the redeemed church will be one family, the family of God. There is a joyous family reunion coming. And we need to keep that in mind because it is tragic that there has been so much animosity between estranged Israel and the church. And there is fault on both sides for that, historically. But it should not be. Look, God is using an illustration. We all know that when there's a divorce, the two sides of the family can bitterly fight and do horrible and awful things to each other. But the good news is that there will come a day when there will be full and complete reconciliation. Joyous family reunion coming. Well, that is... The introduction, I kind of am going to 
enter into my outline now, and I knew I would kind of get to a certain point and not get the whole way, so we're going to kind of start the outline in our remaining time and then finish it next week. So that was Isaiah 50, verse 1. I just thought it was needful to kind of take this phrase where it mentions the certificate of divorce and help you understand what's being talked about. But now I kind of want to get into our outline of chapter 50, verse 1, all the way through chapter 52 and verse 10. Or I'm sorry, verse 12. In this section, Isaiah 50, verse 1, through chapter 52, verse 12, we're going to see four glorious gospel truths. And those truths all build on one another. They, they are connected to one another. And so I kind of give you the overall outline and then we'll kind of walk through them and kind of stop when we're out of time and pick up next week. Four gospel truths in this section. Number one, sin causes separation from God. Number two, separation from God causes suffering. Number three, the suffering of God's son brings salvation. And number four, salvation brings an end to suffering. So do you see the progression there? Sin causes separation. Separation causes suffering. The suffering of Christ brings salvation, and salvation brings an end to suffering. That's the journey we're going to kind of walk on uh, with the rest of our time today and then into next week. So let's look at point one and just see how far we get. Number one, sin causes separation from God. That's what we were just talking about in Isaiah 50 verse 1. Right? Because of your iniquities, because of your transgressions, there's this separation which has occurred. This is talked about directly in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2, where it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then it goes on to describe how their hands are soaked with blood, how they're full of lies and wickedness of all kinds, these vile evils that they have done. Sin separates us from God. And notice that both times in chapter 50, verses 1 and 2, and then in chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, when this separation is talked about, the same phrase occurs. My hand's not too short to save you. He's saying, look, I I was watching you being dragged away by these abusive men, and I was strong enough to save you, but you didn't cry out. Not only that, but when I cried out to you, you didn't answer. You refused my plea to save you. My hand's not too short. My ear's not so dull to not hear your cry, but your iniquities have made a separation. And then he says, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is, this is in light of that marriage illustration, a, a, a very stark moment. It's, it's like a faithful husband seeing something so vile, he's forced to turn away from it. He can't look upon it. The spiritual adultery. God is holy. He cannot dwell with sin and weakness. Sin causes him to turn his face away. Second point, separation from God causes suffering. Chapter 50 and the second part of verse 2 says, Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. The fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth their covering. There's consequences for sin. 
These verses show that there are temporal consequences for sin. Sin brings suffering, and some of that suffering is experienced in this life. Whatever a person sows, they will reap. But sin doesn't just bring suffering on this side of the grave. It brings suffering in hell. I want you to skip down to chapter 50, verse 11. It says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. I want you to notice that this verse describes the fires of hell as one that unrepentant sinners set themselves. They encircle themselves with firebrands. It is, the text says, your fire. They walk among the brands, he says, which you have set ablaze. Sin is what lights the fires of hell. People choose this destiny. And scripture is clear that condemnation is something that unrepentant sinners bring on themselves and they have no one to blame but themselves. They lit the fires. They walked among it. They set it ablaze. The illustration here is of someone who lights a fire and it says you set firebrands around yourself. They literally just lit lit fires all around themselves. They lit the brands. They literally put themselves in the fire. But then God, seeing what they have chosen, responds with judgment. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. In other words, they light the fire. They put themselves in it but it is God's judgment which makes it permanent. And when God says that, he means it. The wrath of God is coming on all unrepentant sinners, and this is a factual reality which does not change based on what you think or feel about it. One of the ways you can distinguish a true believer from an unbeliever who might be religious, but who is not a believer, is whether or not they think that their thoughts and their feelings and their opinions have any effect whatsoever on whether hell exists. You see, the unbeliever thinks this is a story which they can write in their own mind. It's just a quaint story to them. And they don't like the ending that has hell in it. So they think they can just erase that chapter and fill in their own. but your thoughts and feelings have no effect whatsoever on the existence of hell. You know, people are living out the first lie that Satan gave to mankind. Remember the first lie? He says, look, you can be like God. You can be like God. You see, God's thoughts become reality, but your thoughts don't. You can say to yourself, there's no hell. I don't believe in hell. And that has zero effect on its existence. You are not God. Your thoughts do not create or determine reality. You see, the true believer recognizes that hell exists regardless of any human feelings or opinions. It's an objective reality that must be reckoned with. 
But the fake Christian who doesn't really believe thinks that if he doesn't like the doctrine of hell, he can simply reject the doctrine of hell, and if he rejects the doctrine of hell, then hell doesn't exist. He's made himself a god in his own mind. And I hope you see how ridiculous that is. Your thoughts or opinions don't change reality in the slightest. What is the message that God gives to the world? It is flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. Flee to the cross of Christ. It is the only hope. It is the only refuge. Don't trifle with God. Do not take the eternal judge lightly. I want to read you a couple passages from the book of Hebrews. So many people take God lightly. They trifle with the eternal judge. It's like a defendant who goes into a courtroom and says, if I don't believe there's a consequence for my crime, there won't be one. But Hebrews 10.26 says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God speaks through his word. Don't refuse him. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Don't trifle with him. Book of Revelation describes something that is going to take place. And again, what you think about it, what you feel about it, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, it is going to happen. And this is Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The evidence is being recorded. All your private thoughts, all your careless words, all your evil actions, all of it. All recorded in the books. 
Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This will happen. So the big question is, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Have you fled to the cross of Christ? and found refuge in the mercy and grace that God has provided when he sent his son to die in your place, to bear the wrath of God for sin, to take it upon himself and pay for it, then to rise from the dead, to break its power, have you fled to Jesus? He is the only salvation. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you entered into the heavenly kingdom through Christ? Sin causes separation from God. And separation from God causes suffering. Both in the natural consequences we face for evil actions in this life and in the fires of hell if we refuse to repent. Next time, we're going to talk about the third one, which is that the suffering of God's Son brings salvation. In chapter 50, verse 4 through 11, it talks about the suffering of God's Son. And in verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This is a prophecy of the suffering of Christ at his trial before his crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53 will prophesy of the crucifixion itself. This is a prophecy of the suffering he endures in his trial. The suffering of God's son is what brings salvation. Isaiah 53 is gonna say he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That the chastisement that we deserve falls upon him. The suffering of God's son brings salvation and then the final point that we'll see next week is that salvation brings an end to suffering. And I want to close with this because it's so precious. Look at chapter 51, verse 11. It says, So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Two stark destinies determined by one thing. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Eternal joy, gladness, sorrow and sighing, fleeing away, or a fire you've stoked with your own sin in which you will lay down forever. Two stark destinies, one choice. Who is your Lord? Who is your master? Will you flee to Christ? Lord, pray that there will be no soul that refuses you when you plead with them, that refuses you when you you hold out your hands to them. Lord, may they, by faith, grasp hold of your nail-scarred hands. May you lift them out of the muck and mire of sin. May you save them 
redeem them, bring them safely into your heavenly kingdom. Lord, we are so grateful for your promise that the ransom of the Lord will return. They will come with joyful shouting to Zion. They will have everlasting joy. They will obtain gladness and joy and all sorrow and sighing will flee away. Lord, that is my prayer for each soul. May each one have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, for all who have never repented of sin and believed in the good news of the gospel, may that be done today, Lord, by the work of your Spirit in their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.